0: And welcome to Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. I'm Tony Connolly here with former Congressman Mike Rogers. How are you, sir? Tony, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Does that sound weird, former
1: congressman? No, it's to music to my ears. <laughs> I always said the best title I ever had in life, and I had some great ones. Special agent, you know, lieutenant in the Army. Man, The best one was Citizen Rogers. That was.
0: I want to dive into some stuff we recently spoke, so I want to get into some stuff that we didn't talk about. And I wanted to talk about the auto bailout for the state of Michigan. And as a Republican, you voted for it. Obviously, it's a no-brainer, Michigan guy. It was important to our state. But you took a lot of flack for that. Go back, if you will, and talk a little bit about that process and how tough it was. If you recall that period of
1: time, the automobile companies were in real trouble. I mean, real trouble. And I looked at it for a couple of ways, and I had some strong conversations with my colleagues who were Republicans at the time about, listen, like it or not, you don't have to like it, but they are an important part of our national security kind of ecosystem. You can't afford for these companies just to pack up and go away. It's not going to work. And so I didn't look at it as a bailout. I mean, it's more than we ever wanted to do. It's more than I like to do. It probably wasn't written the way I would have written the bill. I would have done a loan where they had to pay back. That's not the choices I had. I had to say, are you willing to try to step up so that these guys can get out of trouble and then they can get back on their feet? I thought it was important enough for not only the state, but I thought it was important enough for the country to take that flag.
0: I remember you taking some hits for that. What were the repercussions after that?
1: In politics, if you're going to go to actually do something and be a leader, I looked at it as my responsibility to go back and get as much information as I can get, not just from the media. Not just from lobbyists, not just from, you know, special interests who are throwing things over the transom. But it was my job to try to decipher all of that. You got to get all of that information, talk to people who are engaged in it, and then come to a conclusion. If you do your job right, you should have the most information available to make a decision, and then come back and explain it to people. People were not happy about it. I can guarantee you that. But I did come back and had those discussions. But here's the crazy thing. I also voted against Wall Street's bailout. I thought that was a very different circumstance with different consequences. You know, the consequences for the auto bailout were very different in my mind, and I spent a lot of time, and I came back and explained that. There were people who weren't happy about that either.
0: How do you feel, and what do you think when you see how the auto industry is doing now, especially with how they're progressing with EVs and trying to rectify the battery situation?
1: Listen, I think they're trying. I was a little disappointed in Ford's partnership with a Chinese company here, For a whole host of reasons, we could do three shows on just that alone, what the Chinese are doing to us, not with us. And they'll do to Ford, not with Ford, at the end of the day. But I do think that they're making great progress. And, you know, my whole thing on electric vehicles is if we're going to have them, make sure all the policies align meaning about 80% of all the processing that happens on those EVs from an electric point of view gets processed in China. So if we're going to think that China is our strategic competitor going forward, we need to think about ways where we can produce and process, meaning can we get the lithium out of the ground, can we process that lithium, and can we you know, put it in a form that can actually go into an American car battery. We have to do all of those things, too. That's really not the car company's business, but it is that whole ecosystem of an electric car that we're going to have to work on. But the fact that they're pushing out and moving out, I hear great reviews about the Mustang. That's fantastic. I actually have a Lincoln Aviator, the plug-in hybrid. I love the thing. And it gets about 20 miles on a charge. It's not for everybody, but I do like the direction of that technology. And I do think it's going to have a place. It probably shouldn't be everywhere for everyone. You know, you're in the UP with a, you know, small EV Chevy Bolt, that thing gets sucked up in a snowblower and shoved in your neighbor's yard. You won't find it till spring, right? I mean, it's just not going to be for everybody. But I do think there's a place for EV moving forward, really, in high, densely urban areas, I think would really be helpful.
0: Why is Ford, why is the American government, why is the world so naive about China when you see all the things they're doing from the the balloon flying across the country to the impact they're having at colleges and universities with the money they're giving. What happened there? Why are we overlooking this?
1: Well, I don't know if you recall this, but back in about 2011, I did the first investigation on a company called Huawei Mm -hmm. that was a telecommunications provider from China that we had suspicions was a data collection platform for the intelligence services In China, in Beijing, for the Communist Party. And through that investigation, it became more clear and more clear and more clear. And we published that in 2012, I believe. So we had an unclassified version and a classified version about saying, hey, be careful. This stuff is not what they're saying it is. And they were undercutting U.S. market. They were actually giving things away because they wanted the equipment and the data more than they wanted revenue, right? We don't operate that way, shouldn't operate that way. And so I think that started a very long trail. And by the way, I got a lot of flack for that too, because at that time corporate America was saying gold rush China. Let's go. Everybody's going to be filthy rich. We're going to be massive companies selling into a billion-person market in China. And you get all that, and I'm a free market guy, but that's just not how the Chinese Communist Party works. You have to have a Chinese Communist Party partner. They steal intellectual property as fast as they can get their hands on it. There's just a whole bunch of problems. And that was part of it, because corporate America was saying, yes, yes, yes. Consumers were saying, hey, I'm getting a better deal. And at the end of the day, the Chinese were trying to do something, I think, nefarious along the way.
0: I'm Tony Connolly. This is Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. We're talking with Congressman Mike Rogers. When we come back, more conversation about China here on Media Business. For something to grow, it takes time. Like the equity in your home. That's why LaughQ offers a home equity
1: line of credit. Because frequent watering of your house plants may be recommended.
0: Now, can we get a new roof?
1: Not so much the rest of the house. Want the best rates for a home equity line of credit? Ask for LaughQ. Stop in today or go to slash home equity. LaughQ, your credit union for life.
0: This is Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. We're talking with Congressman Mike Rogers. We were just talking about China. Enlighten us a little bit more. You've been studying this and working with this for so long. Again, we seem to be so naive, so soft, so wimpy when it comes to this. Now we see Chinese nationalists coming over the southern border. So many things are coming out in regards to information about the genesis of COVID. We talk about opioids and how China's role in that, how they're now partnering with Russia. Do you think we're ever going to get it? Well, I hope so. We have to do it soon and
1: for a couple of reasons. One is you have this kind of overarching strategic competitor that's coming at us. Listen, they still have children sleeping on dirt floors working in factories, right? And they want what we have, which is a large and robust middle class. They have not It's growing. It's got bigger. But they also know that they've got to get more. And the way they get more is by taking it away from somebody. And that happens to be the United States and our European allies. I'm talking about economics and intellectual property and all of those things. They're like a duck on the top of the water. They look calm and say, nothing to see here. We're benign. We're nice. We're not going to do anything. Underneath, they're paddling like heck. And what that paddling means is all the things we just talked about. In the meantime, by the way, their military has the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, and it's pretty modern. They have just surpassed the number of ships in our U.S. Navy. They developed this uh, hypersonic missile system deliberately to go after U.S. naval vessels, right? They want to go after our strengths. They've militarized space. All this time while we've been kind of sleeping, and corporate America says, don't be too hard on them, don't be too hard on them. My argument is, listen, I would love for China to be good international corporate citizens, you know, global citizens in commerce. That would be great. We could compete against them. I believe we can win. But that's really not their intention. It has not been their intention. So we just got to get ready to compete. And there's some things domestically we must do to get ready to go.
0: I saw an interview that the FBI director gave with Brett Baer recently, and it was very interesting. And I just wanted to get your take as someone who was very well vested in the FBI on what the perception is of them, how there is evidence that they are not fair when it comes to conservative folks that may be facing more challenges than liberal folks. And that could be political, non-political. What's your take on that?
1: So I was a, at the time we called brick agent, and I was a working case agent for the FBI working organized crime in the city of Chicago. So I was chasing guys like No Nose DeFranzo and Johnny Apes and a guy named Diesel and, you know, Joey Ayupa, he was the big boss of the Chicago mob. And so that was real crime work, everything from murders to extortions to arsons to, you know, human trafficking and drugs, everything, everything you can imagine. And so that's real FBI work. And I think it's really important to note that the vast majority of these agents are doing that. Their heads are down. They're doing the work. Matter of fact, we had two agents, I think it was two years ago now, get killed serving a warrant on a child pornographer. It's real work. It's dangerous work. Something happened at the headquarters of the FBI when they took over these cases and were directing these cases that had political overtones. And what has been coming out has been a little shocking to me. You know, an agent that falsified an affidavit going to a judge for the FISA court. Mm -hmm. If I was in, you know, you're done. Not only you are done, you're probably in jail. My understanding is he didn't serve in jail. He got his law license back after a year. I worry about some agents having this culture in the headquarters building that it's okay to fudge a little bit to get where you're going. I think that's really dangerous, very dangerous. I think I'd clean out the leadership of the Bureau and start over again.
0: Well, speaking of that, that's my next question. That would have seemed like a perfect position for you with your political experience, your military experience, your experience with the FBI. Whatever happened with that?
1: (laughs) Well, I was interviewed for that. I was interviewed by the attorney general at the time, Sessions, and some of the Trump team, and they just decided to go a different way. You know, they never really told me why, but Listen, I think we could avoid a lot of this problem because I am passionate about that organization not being Republican or Democrat. It can't be either and it shouldn't be either. Matter of fact, my first case, public corruption case, was against a Republican when I was an FBI agent. Crime is a crime, you know, and it wears no party, right? And so we would do well, the Bureau would do well to get back to that. And if there's a question, I'm sorry that you err on the side of good ethics. You don't err on the side of, well, let's fudge a document and get to the next place.
0: Mike, there was a lot of discourse and division when Donald Trump was president. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that and the division we're seeing now. I'm talking with Congressman Mike Rogers. I'm Tony Conley. This is Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. Looking for office furniture on a budget? Stop by The Office Outlet at 516 North Larch in downtown Lansing and save. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. The Office Outlet has a huge selection of new and used office furniture from brand name manufacturers. All at discounted prices. Save 50 to 90% on used seating, desks, files and more. The Office Outlet is your destination for office furniture on a budget. Visit us online at officeoutletyes.com. to media business. I'm Tony Connolly. We're talking with Congressman Mike Rogers, and we're talking about discourse that we're seeing in America. And there was a lot of discourse with President Trump when Joe Biden got into office. There was a lot of discussion of easing that. It seems worse now, just from your perspective on the outside looking in. Why has it gotten worse? And where do you see it going from here?
1: You know, when legislators become more interested in being stars of some sort, social media stars or Twitter stars, that's where the trouble starts, I think, because it's easy. I call it sugar high politics, right? It's easy to get a swack in on your opponent. Feels great. Everyone cheers like, yeah, I you'll love that. But At the end of the day, that does not fix one problem. It doesn't work us closer to getting something done. And listen, I'm a big believer that if you're going to love your country, you have to love your countrymen even if you disagree with them. It doesn't mean you have to love them. It just means that you've got to talk to them and understand where they're coming from, and then try to work something out for big issues. And remember this whole China thing we talked about, they're coming. So are we ready? Right now, their third largest budget item in the very near future is going to be the interest on our national debt, which will be bigger than the Department of Defense. That's not sustainable. That means that the Chinese aren't going to have that kind of problem. When you look at half of our high school seniors last year that graduated couldn't read at the sixth grade level. Half. They're teaching quantum physics to their Chinese students. You know, we're graduating kids that can't read. They have twice as many PhDs in science, technology, engineering, and math every year than we do. Right. We have competition. We have to stop. We know, take our hands off each other's throat. Hear them out. Doesn't mean you have to agree. I have some issues I'm passionately disagree with Democrats on. You can have those discussions. But at the end of the day, you have to say, how can we move forward a little bit for the country? Not for your party, but for the country.
0: Let's talk about the media, myself, everyone else in the media. What's been our role in this division? I will
1: say that people have found, I would argue, the cable networks primarily, affirmation news. You go and flick on to a place where you want to hear them say what you're thinking. They have to affirm what you believe. And I think that's not healthy. When I got out, I actually signed up with CNN as a national security commentator and analyst because I thought, well, at that time, their perception was they're kind of middle of the road, you know, just do the news, Mm -hmm. let you decide. Mm -hmm. That changed over time. Why I was there, I watched the change. And I think Fox did their thing, MSNBC did their thing, and it was all about the corporate decision to get eyeballs on the screen. And I get that. Mm -hmm. The problem was, it has worked America up in a way, like, where do you go to find the truth? So you can make up your own mind. That's hard. There's a lot of opinion shows on those networks, lots. And people are confusing opinion shows with news.
0: I think there is no such thing as misinformation and disinformation. I think there are lies, there's the truth, and there's opinion. What do you think?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. I do think, well, if you're trying to deliberately mislead, that probably would qualify for a lie, certainly in my book. And the problem is now you have professionals getting into the disinformation business. Our foreign adversaries are in the disinformation business. That's what I think people need to understand. And it is very easy to get into your smartphone, your computer, and get on your screen. Easier than you can imagine to have information on stories that you think could be true because this is where you're thinking anyway, right? And it's an easy path to pull you down. That is completely and deliberately misleading to the American public. It happens. It's going to continue to happen. I argue it's probably going to get worse before it gets better.
0: And from your perspective, how can we in the media be better at presenting this information? And maybe more importantly, how can the consumer be better at finding the truth and information that's really going to help them conduct their life in a better way? Yeah, I think you just have to be, A, find a site that you like.
1: And then just check it every once in a while, you know, check it back on some other site that might have a difference of opinion. We're going to have to be our own fact checkers. I don't think anyone's going to come out and do this for you. You know, there are many, and I've talked to maybe three different groups trying to start a, we would determine an old fashioned kind of a media outlet where you're going to do the interview and let people decide what they think of it. And, you know, same with articles and other things. I don't know if it'll catch on. They think that there's an appetite for it. I do know my son, he's a Naval Academy graduate. He's a cyber warfare engineer, officer in the Navy, called me the other day and said, he said, I am so confused. Where do I go to find a story where I can kind of just make up my own mind? And, you know, the candid thing is I didn't know what to tell him. And so I said the same thing where you're going to have to go to a liberal site, go to a conservative (laughs) site, try to figure out, take some common facts and go from there if you have any real questions on that article.
0: Final question for you. Any thought about getting back into politics? There are some, and I guess I would be one to say if anyone could beat Gretchen Whitmer, it would be you. Any thoughts about getting back into the political arena?
1: I don't know. You know, listen, I was never wanted to be one of those guys that was in office for 20, 30, 40 years. That wasn't me. I wasn't interested in that. And I stepped out when I was on the high note. I was, uh, you know, the chairman of a very important committee. I had seniority on energy and commerce. So the reason that we're out having these conversations now, and my wife is as well, is we're just worried about the state of the union. Our politics has gotten small and our problems have gotten big. And I fear that if we don't kind of shake ourselves out of this, We're going to find ourselves in a losing competition with China in a way that's going to take away our children and our children's children's ability to be prosperous the way we have been.
0: One more question real quickly. I've got less than a minute. A lot of folks don't know what you're doing now, and I think it's pretty important. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, so I am invested, and I'm an advisor and on boards of companies that are into cybersecurity, so network security, perimeter security. I even have a data loss ransomware company that we're just getting up and off the ground, so I do a lot of cybersecurity work. I love the startup business. It is exciting. It's almost terrifying on some days. You're running out of cash and your month is still out there. All of those things. And I, I've learned a ton, of, for sure, in the last eight years. But being in that business sector has really, I think, sharpened my understanding of how technology can actually help the government right become more efficient. If you send $10 to the government today, odds are you're not getting six of it back in services. I think we can improve that through this technology. So I'm doing a lot of this technology stuff. I'm the chairman of the board of a corporation called MITRE, M-I-T-R-E. It's a not-for-profit public mission company, 10,000 engineers, $2 billion in revenue. And the government comes to MITRE and says, help us on nuclear command and control. We need some help. That's what we get all these engineers around a table. It's really fun to watch the collaboration fix big problems. And so that's what I've been doing. And there's some synergy between fixing problems through a technology lens and where we need to go as a government here in the
0: future. Congressman, as always, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. I'm Tony Connolly. This has been Media Business on the Michigan Business Network. We'll see you next time.